So I floundered around. Uh, I, I just was uh, just overwhelmed that there would be scholars in my denomination who did not believe in the inerrancy of the Bible and that it was inspired and, and such. And these were the scholars in the denomination that I sort of just defaulted into as a teenager because that's the denomination my friends who led me to Christ were from, basically. So again, I floundered for about a year or so, and God began to bring uh, apologists into my life. These were scholars and thinkers, Christian leaders, who had a keen insight into the reasons why we believe what we believe as Christians. How do we know God exists? How do we know the Bible is inspired? How do we know Jesus rose from the dead and those kinds of things? What are the arguments? What's the evidence? How do you answer this objection? How do you answer that objection? So... God began to bring these apologists into my life, uh, primarily through their uh, cassette tape ministry. Young people, if there's any left in here, cassette tapes are these little plastic things, a little bit bigger than a credit card. Okay, this is from the caveman days. You know, you ditch your cassette player, you know, and put it in and listen to stuff. You may recognize some of the names. Uh, R.C. Sproul, who was a big hero of mine, Josh McDowell. And then a man who later became my mentor, and in many respects like a second father to me, Norman L. Geisler, who is the co-founder of our seminary in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. He's a big-time apologist. So it was through apologetics, if you will, that I came back to a solid walk with the Lord as a teenager now into my early 20s. And that's what gave me the passion. Because if you're familiar with apologetics, as I understand all of you are, then it's, it's easy for people to... It's easy to see its obvious application as to defending the faith against the unbeliever. In fact, apologetics used to be known as pre-evangelism, where you would sort of furrow and plow the ground and massage the conversation and then get to the point where a person was ready to consider the claims of Christ on their life. But I experienced what apologetics can do for somebody who's already a Christian. Uh, And there may be somebody here this morning who perhaps... You've grown up in the church and you've trusted Christ from childhood, but you've never really uh, needed to maybe think too much about why you believe. And now as you've become older, you begin to challenge, get challenged on the Internet or at work or, or in school or whatever. That's what gave me the passion. Now, one of the things I learned in studying theology, and I, I'm not a theologian. I, I know theology just by virtue of being a Christian like probably many of you are, and maybe there are some theologians here that have made that a focus of their uh, formal studies. That, that wasn't me. I'm actually a philosopher. Maybe I shouldn't have said that, but I'm already up here, so you can't get rid of me yet, unless you've got one of those big hooks from the side of the stage that you pull off. But I'm actually a philosopher. One of the first things I learned, though, from a Bible teacher named Earl Rodmacher, who's now gone to be with the Lord. He was a scholar in residence with Campus Crusade for many decades was the distinction in theology between general revelation and special revelation. Let me unpack these for you as I then tee up the question before us about how do we know, how do I know what I know, how do we know what we know. First of all, just in terms of the definition of revelation. Now, we're not talking about the book of Revelation in the Bible, but the theological concept of revelation. Revelation is God making known to mankind his divine person and divine truths that would otherwise be unknown. Or you could say to unveil. So when God unveils things about himself, 
that we would not necessarily be able to know otherwise. That broadly considered is God's revelation. So revelation is different from inspiration. Because revelation is God making known these truths. Inspiration is the transference of those truths primarily into written form through the agency of human beings for us to be able to read. So revelation is the giving of truth. Inspiration is the recording of truth. Now what about the distinction that I introduced between general and special revelation? Now is this being recorded? It is? A th- an enthusiastic thumbs up from the tech crew in the back. The reason why I ask that is because when you're a speaker, and you have to wipe your nose, and it's only an audio, then people return the MP3 going, I got a defective audio, because all of a sudden it just went real muffled. You don't have to do that if it's video. So just letting them know. You learn these things as a professional speaker, so don't try this at home. So what about the distinction I introduced, general versus special revelation? I would submit to you, and I submit a lot of things. I submitted a lot of things at our conference, didn't I, Professor, uh, there. That way you don't really have to be on the hook for defending everything you say. Well, I just submitted it. I didn't say I was right. General revelation is God making known to mankind through his creation, his existence, attributes, and goodness. For example, Psalm 19.1, you're familiar with? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Psalm 97, the heavens show his righteousness. One of my favorite verses in this regard is Romans 1.20 that talks about since the creation of the world, his invisible, listen to the language here, it's kind of quirky. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood through the things that are made, through creation. Romans 2.14 and 15 talks about the works the work of the law written on the heart. So the nations who weren't there at Sinai can't plead, well, it's not our fault. We didn't get the Ten Commandments. How do we know we're not supposed to murder? And Paul's preempting that objection by saying the work of the law is written in the heart. There are things about God's moral requirements on us that we can know, I'm jumping ahead slightly, as human beings, not as recipients of God's Ten Commandments directly. No matter where you are in the world, there are certain things you can know that are enough to tell you you're guilty before God. Acts 14, 17 talks about God's providential superintendence of people groups all over the world as, a, as an evidence of Him as a beneficent uh, creator and governor of the universe. So we'll, maybe we'll unpack a little bit of that piecemeal as we go along. But let me get out onto the table then. How does that distinguish from special revelation? Special revelation then is God making known to mankind through his prophets, apostles, and his son, the Lord Jesus, his nature and will that could not necessarily be known through general revelation. So Romans 2, 14 and 15 may tell you what is called in, in, uh, in, in uh, intellectual history or philosophical history called natural law theory. It may tell you that you can't and shouldn't kill another human. It doesn't really tell you that you shouldn't hate another. It might be able to tell you under certain circumstances that you should be faithful in your marriage, but it can't really tell you that you shouldn't lust after another person. 
right? And so some of those more serious and deep issues of sin, we take God's Word to tell us these things. This is why it's so good that you guys are are, uh, learning God's Word the way you are, because that's really how we're going to be privy to some knowledge that we couldn't have otherwise figured out, I think, on our own accord. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, that is nothing is just in isolation from everything else God is saying. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tell us, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that word there, uh, given by inspiration of God, is really just one word in the Greek. And it's a word that presumably Paul just made up. I don't know if it occurs anywhere else in any uh, uh, Koine Greek literature. It certainly doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament that I'm aware of. And it's a combination of the word God and the combination of the word breathe. In fact, the NIV actually translates it that way, which I think captures the meaning more accurately. All Scripture is God-breathed. So technically, it's really the Scriptures that are inspired in, in an important sense than the writer, although there is a sense, I guess you could say, the writer is, quote, inspired in the vein of Second Peter passage. So now let's tee up uh, and get a little bit more to the topic at hand. How do I know that I know? The first thing I want to get out before us now in this regard is... The issue of faith and reason. Those are the two categories that have been appealed to to talk about some kind of interplay. And what is that interplay between two different sort of intellectual or spiritual activities that we have that we catalog some of these as issues of reason and some of these as issues of faith. Now, the word faith has a number of different usages. There's only one of which is is initially relevant to me. I'll bring in one of the others towards the end. But there's the common use of the term where people talk about the Christian faith or the Muslim faith or the Hindu faith. And there we just mean basically religion, some kind of, you know, some kind of a, a institutionalized religion. There's the theological sense of the term, which I'll save to the very end. It's one of the theological virtues, like Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are you saved through faith. So that here, faith is going to be more, we know as Christians, than just merely some kind of intellectual activity. It's going to have something to do that affects our eternal relationship with God. But then there's the epistemological term, epistemological sense, usage. Now, epistemological, first of all, I like the word epistemology because you get to spit on somebody and, and, and get away with it when you say that word, when you're talking to them. If you've ever wanted to do that, just start talking epistemology Oh, sorry. It was an accident. So it's really the branch of philosophy that deals with knowledge. How do we know what we know? It just comes from the Greek word episteme, which means to be acquainted with. So this is relevant to how we come to know reality and how and why we hold certain beliefs about reality. Now, let me see if I can sell you on the project. You're here already. But let me see if I can sell you on the project for the next few minutes. There's a great book I would commend to your reading you may be familiar with by Robert Riley. Robert R. Riley titled The Closing of the Muslim Mind. It's it's a takeoff on 
a book that came out, it's probably in the 80s, uh, by Alan Bloom, The Closing of the American Mind. So he's playing off that, that title. The thesis of Riley's book, and you can actually hear Riley give lectures on his book on YouTube. You just type it in, and you can hear him lecture on it if, uh, if, uh, before you even get access to the book. The thesis of the book basically is this, that both Christianity and Islam wrestled during the Middle Ages with the issue of how does faith and reason relate to one another. I'm not so sure how to fit Judaism in this. I'll have to maybe do some you know, other research on that. Riley doesn't pick that up, but it's likely there may be some concomitant uh, area where Judaism had the same sort of internal examination. But at any rate, Christianity and Islam were coming to terms with what is the role of reason in the life of the soul, to quote J.P. Moreland's great book, Love Your God With All Your Mind, The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul. Now, this is oversimplified, but he goes into detail in the book. But basically, his finding was Christianity, more or less, came to this settled belief of this symbiotic relationship, this mutually beneficial relationship between reason and faith, religious revealed truth, so to speak. And that opened up Christianity in Europe to be uh, open, I guess is the best word, to new ideas. Like, for example, the shift from geocentrism, where we all believe that the earth was the center of the solar system, to heliocentrism, where now we all believe, except for one guy I know on the internet, that the sun is the center of the solar system, right? That was, a, that was a tough struggle that lasted a couple of centuries for, for Christians. But at least Christians were open to the fact that, well, maybe we didn't really understand Joshua chapter 10 when Joshua commanded the sun to stand still. And Cardinal Robert Bellarmine argues, well, you can't, stand it, you can't stand still if it isn't moving. Galileo, duh. That's what the Bible says. It took us a while to go, well, actually, that's probably just language of appearance. So like when Joel talks about the moon turning to blood. And nobody thinks the moon actually is liquid and has corpuscles and antibodies and, you know, things like that. It just means it turned red like blood. So that's called phenomenological or language of appearance. And also Christianity was open to new ideas in government, private property, uh, uh, individual rights, all these kind of things. And so Christian Europe began to flourish, whereas according to Riley's thesis, at least Sunni Islam uh, decided for faith over reason. So that you were not allowed to come up with new ideas or make an argument. Well, what do you think about this? How would you answer? I have a friend who, when he was a Muslim, he was a professor at the, the university in Cairo, Egypt, professor of Islamic history. And he thought it would be good for the Muslim students to sort of ask penetrating questions. How do we know the Quran is the word of God? Why should we believe that? And those kind of things. And the rumor got out to the fellow faculty that he was doing this. Now, this is, this is the 20th century when he's doing this. And they're sitting in the faculty meeting, and what, what are you doing? And he, well, I'm doing this. And one of the other faculty just slapped him right upside the head. Just bam for doing that. Because you're not supposed to ask questions. And he told us later, he eventually became a Christian. Now he does ministry to Muslims. He said, there are some questions you can ask as a Muslim that you just are automatically no longer Muslim. Just by asking the question. Riley's thesis is, this is what arrested Islamic development so that they're still sort of hovering around the 10th century or so when many nations 
got along with other nations by invading and destroying them and taking all their stuff. That's what people did. You just conquered other nations and take their stuff. It's kind of the history, not only of Native American tribes, but also tribes and people grouped around the world. That's just what people did. But then eventually, Christianity, because, you know, there might be some way to have some diplomatic relationship with each other and get along fine. So that's his argument. This is why we have this crisis with ISIS today. They're still trying to set up a caliphate like they were trying to do in the 10th century. And they are not open to these new ideas. If that's right, and I think he is, you could read his book and decide for yourself. Then you go, okay, well, so this faith reason thing, this isn't just sort of ivory tower academics. This may have some real life consequences as it seemingly already has. So what is that relationship? I'm not going to tell you. I'm done. It'd be funny. Just leave. Just walk out. That way I get invited back. Probably not. What is this? Well, I think there's a very popular misconception about faith and reason in Christianity. Uh, Dan Brown, you guys know Dan Brown wrote The Da Vinci Code and Inferno and to Angels and Demons and these kind of uh, stuff. Uh, in a lecture he gave, he said, I wasn't really sure where to turn. Where science offered exciting proofs of its claims, whether it was photos, equations, visible evidence, religion was a lot more demanding. It constantly wanted me to accept everything on faith. As I'm sure you're aware, faith takes a fair amount of effort. You have to forgive me because I have allergies. So just talk awkwardly among yourselves while I... Religion, he thinks, wanted him to accept everything on faith. So this popular misconception, I submit, thinks of it this way. Faith is opinion. Reason is truth. Faith is values. Reason is facts. Faith is inner. Reason is outer. Faith is private. Reason is public. Faith is emotional. Reason is rational. Faith is feelings. Reason is thoughts. Faith is subjective. Reason is objective. Faith is religion. Reason is science. Faith is true for me. Reason is true for all. And I submit to you that's a common misunderstanding. If you're a fan of the Miracle on 34th Street, the original one, uh, and the whole, the, the whole drama there where she's a real analytic and bookish uh, single mom and he's this happy-go-lucky uh, lawyer and they start to fall in love and their worldviews clash because you know, he's wanting her to have faith in what looks like stupid decisions he's making in terms of a career if they're going to be married. And she's like... Uh, not going to go that. He said, well, you know, faith is, is uh, believing, in some, believing in something when common sense tells you not to. That was, the, that was the little motto that endured through the movie. And I would submit to you that that's a common, but I think mistaken view historically of what Christians have thought about faith and reason. Atheists have disdain for what they conceive to be faith. Sam Harris, one of the Four Horsemen of the Atheist Apocalypse, you may be familiar with. In his book, The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason, says this, quote, Religious faith is the belief in historical and metaphysical propositions without sufficient evidence. He goes on to say, Faith is the mortar that fills the cracks in the evidence and gaps in the logic. And thus, it's faith that keeps the whole terrible edifice of religious certainty still looming dangerously over our world. And what he's referring to there is 9-11. It was religious certainty that drove the, uh, the, uh, the ter Muslim terrorists into the buildings. Richard Dawkins, 
who wrote The God Delusion. Until, I think, The God Delusion came out, probably the single writing, single work, was actually kind of an article, that was responsible for disabusing more young people of their faith when they went off to college was Bertrand Russell's Why I Am Not a Christian. I think it's probably been displaced by Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. He says, faith is an evil precisely because it requires no justification in Brooks, no argument. And I've got other quotes here. In fact, I can tell you, uh, and I can give it to the leadership of how to get on my website. You can get the, the uh, I don't know why I'm doing my hands this way, but it's a PDF document. I have no idea if this is a signal for PDF documents, but whatever. Uh, it's a PDF document of the slides of the presentation that I do on, on, on this. And you can get more and more quotes, but I won't take the time to do them this morning. And I actually go into others, you know, postmodernism view of, of faith and reason and, and, uh, and, and others. But let me jump to the chase. What is, in, at least in my judgment, the classical view of faith and reason? Now, when I say classical, I, I include a number of things, not the least of which is this is sort of what Christians have believed throughout history. But don't understand me to mean, well, then that proves that it's true. I'm not saying it's true because that's what Christians have always believed. But I would suggest if it is something Christians have always believed, you might want to tread cautiously if you thought you were going to throw that away, right? Because I think there are some things that a lot of Christians have believed for a long time that aren't true, personally. As a Protestant, I would say that, uh, that, that are sort of these accretions over the centuries. And, but nevertheless... I at least include this idea that this is the way we've understood faith and reason largely from the, from the church fathers uh, uh, forward. And then I think you can make a biblical argument for it. In fact, I've already laid the groundwork for that very biblical argument. But here's the difference. Reason is believing something on the basis of demonstration. If something was demonstrated to you to be so, and that's why you believe it, then historically that would be said, I, I believe it on the basis of reason. Now, what is a demonstration? Well, it depends on the thing you're talking about. Uh, a historical demonstration is different than a, than a medical demonstration or different than a, than a uh, philosophical demonstration or theological. In other words, whatever the subject matter is will have its own protocol and methods of inquiry, tools of analysis that are relevant to that particular way. So you don't, you know, you don't uh, mix them illicitly. You don't have the teenage son come to his dad and go, Dad, you know, how, do you, how do you know when, when you've met the right girl and you're in love? Oh, I've got an app for that, son. You know, what you do is you plug in you know, how, how tall she is and when she was born, and like, it comes out. You just go, no, that, that's not how you know those things. So you don't want to mi illicitly mix categories. You know, and try to demand a, an electronic mathematical answer to, say, a, a question about romance or whatever. John Calvin said this, Therefore, in reading the profane authors, there what he means are the non-Christian pagan philosophers of ancient Greece, the admirable light of truth displayed in them should remind us that the human mind, however much fallen and perverted from its original integrity, is still adorned and invested with admirable gifts from its creator. I'll give you the citation of that if you want when you come up and get it off my notes. John Owen. John Owen is considered by many to be the most brilliant Christian to ever write in English. He was a 17th century Puritan. He says this, 
There are sundry cogent arguments which are taken from external considerations of the Scripture, that is, outside the Bible, that evince it on rational grounds to be from God and are necessary unto the confirmation of our faith herein against temptations, oppositions, and objections. So, reason is attending to something, coming to believe it on the basis of the fact that you understand the demonstration. In contrast, then, faith at least initially as I define it, and I'm going to attenuate it here as I, as I bring it to a close. Faith is believing something on the basis of authority. One of my favorite examples I like to give is uh, uh, the, the whole thing about Fermat's last theorem. And the one reason I like to give this example is having been born and reared in the South, I like to say Fermat. I just like to be able to roll my R's. I don't get to do that much in the Deep South. Um, so Fermat, Pierre de Fermat, was a 17th century mathematician. And he was a contemporary with uh, Descartes and others. And he formulated over his mathematical career all these theorems, as mathematicians are wont to do, right? And over the centuries, every one of Fermat's theorems has been proven either to be true or false. Hey, it was good. this was a good one, he was right. No, no, it turns out he was not right, except one. And one of his theorems has never been able to have been proven true or false. And it became known as Fermat's last theorem. And he writes about it in the margin of a book that he's jotting in his book as he's reading it. He says, I found the most ingenious proof, but it's too, it's too large to fit in the margin. And he never mentions it again in any of his writings. So it's driving these, these uh, mathematicians nuts. It's one of the longest enduring enigmas in math history until 1998 when Andrew Wiles of Princeton University proved that Fermat's last theorem was true. Uh, and the title of his article is, uh, is Modular Elliptic Curves in Fermat's Last Theorem. It's in the Annals of Mathematics. It's 111 pages long. Okay? You can actually get a summary of it on a t-shirt. Wouldn't it be hilarious to just walk around? I get about three, three letters into the proof and I'm lost. Now, why do I give that as an illustration? Because if somebody asks me, well, Richard, do you believe in that Fermat's last theorem is true? Yes. Have you seen the demonstration? No. I, don't, I couldn't understand it at all. Uh, well, how do you know it's true? Well, Andrew Wiles and his peers said it's true. Uh, and I just trust them as authorities. Notice what I'm doing. I'm not just believing just anybody that came along and told me about something like Fermat's last theorem. Reason was able to adjudicate legitimate authorities. But having identified that authority, I have to decide whether I'm going to take him at his word or not. I don't know if Fermat's last theorem is true. But am I a fool for believing Andrew Wiles, given what we know about him as a Princeton mathematician, plus all of his stuff being vetted in peer review. Well, no, I, in fact, I think you would be a fool not to believe that, to go against that kind of evidence. So even when it comes to faith in the sense of trusting an authority, reason still has a sort of an anterior role to play in adjudicating authorities. You have to know who's an authority before you know who to trust. Augustine put it this way, for who cannot see that thinking, that's reason, is prior to believing, that's faith. For no one believes anything unless he has first thought it is to be believed. Thomas Aquinas, and I had to 
quote Thomas Aquinas at least once or I'd get kicked out of the guild of people who, never, who, had quote, who quote Thomas Aquinas at least once every time they talk. I'm in this club, so I have to throw it in or I get kicked out. Or at least put on probation. Thomas Aquinas says this, One who believes, that is, has faith, gives assent to things that are proposed to him by another in which he himself does not see. Stephen Charnock who wrote uh, the famous work book, uh, Discourses Upon the Existence and Attributes of God. You know, the only place you find that work today in, in the 21st century is in a graduate-level seminary class or philosophy of religion class. You know what it is? It's a collection of sermons he preached to 17th century farmers. Now, I don't know about Alaska, but I can tell you my experience growing up in the southeast, in the lower 48 that if you preach that kind of depth of theology, they'd kick you out. they say, well, no, that's too deep for us. It's a commentary, I think, on American Christianity. Charnock says this, men that, men that will not listen to Scripture cannot easily deny reason. There is a natural as well as revealed knowledge, and the book of the creatures, that is creation, is legible in declaring the being of a God. But for us as Christians, it's, it's a little bit more... Important than just that. Because I would submit to you what we are faced with as Christians is not only trying to amass what we can understand about God and His ways and His will as He's revealed them through creation, but also being able to know why it is that it's reasonable to trust what God has additionally said to us through revealed truth. So more than just Faith is believing something on the basis of authority. Most of the time, I think, in our experience now, and, and, and certainly in our culture, is that faith really should be defined as believing something on the basis of divine authority. Not just mathematics, but divine and cosmic and eternal truth. Thomas Aquinas, again, sent, I get credit for more than one quote, really, I might get a little star, a little, little gold star. Yeah, he quoted him twice. Really, two times in a sermon? Yeah. He says this, Since man can only know the things he does not see himself by taking them from another who does see them, and since faith is among the things we do not see, the knowledge of the objects of faith must be handed on by one who sees them himself. Now this one is God, who perfectly comprehends himself and naturally sees his essence. The deep things of the Spirit are revealed by the Spirit. So take as an example then, as I try to tie a ribbon around some of these thoughts. You Take an event like the death of Jesus on the cross. I submit to you that the fact that he died on the cross is demonstrable by reason using the tools, methods, protocols, data points of history. It is a historical event that you can demonstrate by the tools and methods of the historians that that actually did occur. So we can know Jesus died. In fact, lots of people died on crosses. In fact, three people died that day, right, on Mount Calvary. But I submit to you that it had to be revealed what made his death different from others. And that revelation was strewn out from Genesis 3.15 all the way up, wasn't it? And isn't it? So I remember as a teenager, I was 19, right around that time that I was struggling, kind of coming out of the fog. 
And um, our denomination had these opportunities for college students to go away for 10 weeks in the summer to do missions, sometimes uh, domestic, sometimes international. And it'd give you an opportunity to sort of taste the experience of missionary work to see if perhaps that's something one might want a career in just to dedicate their life to missions. So I did that one summer. And so we're at this orientation in Pennsylvania. About, a, I don't know, a thousand, I don't know how many thousand college students from around the U.S. are all gathered in this one before we all disperse to our relative ministries. And the leader got, one of the leaders got up and said, okay, so one of the things we want you to do is I want you to pair off with whoever's right next to you. It doesn't matter whether you know them or not. Likely you wouldn't. We're all a bunch of strangers. Just pair off with somebody and go off by yourself and then share the gospel with each other. Because hopefully in your ministry this t- these 10 weeks, you're going to have an opportunity to share the gospel. You might as well get, you know, get some practice in. Okay, so you know, there's a young lady next to me, and we just go over. It's a big like gymnasium kind of thing. We go over and sit on the bleachers. Okay, ladies first. And she said, well, you know, we know that Jesus died for our sins. And I said, okay, so I got a question for you. And I wasn't trying to be a jerk, but I was getting exposed to this apologetic stuff. And I said, uh, you know, three people died that day on Mount Calvary, on Good Friday, on crosses, right next to each other. What makes his death different from the other two? And she's like, See, I don't really know how to, what to say. And I'm thinking, that's what I'm afraid we're going to get asked. I'm thinking, that's what my, somebody might ask me. I, I would rather for us to deal with it right now in sort of a safe space, if you will, if I can use that term, um, rather than in the throes of an intellectual battle and you lose the opportunity to tell somebody a, with a cogent answer, as Apollos did in Acts when he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing that Jesus was the Christ uh, you know, and, and, and rose from the dead. And so I think that we know that because God has revealed it to us. So what we have to do as individuals, I think, is to, is to decide whether or not we're going to trust God when he tells me that, the, that me trusting in the death of his son is the payment for my sins. To him who works, your wages are not counted as a gift but a debt. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis 15 that Paul's doing in Romans 4, 4 and 5. Now, are we fools for taking God at his word when we think he's told us in, his Bible, in the Bible that Jesus died for our sins? Well, reason I submit to you can begin to deal with that. Well, how do I know there is a God? He's revealed himself through creation, he claims, in, his, in that same Bible. So how do I get from what I can see, hear, taste, touch, or smell to a God who's infinite, eternal, timeless, spaceless, all good, all powerful, all loving, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? How do we get from that to that? You can take a class at the Southern Evangelical Seminary. You can audit a class. You don't have to pay hardly anything. Uh, or you can get something, a certificate. You can get stuff for credit. You don't have to get into a degree program necessarily. Or you can go full bore all the way through Anything in between. We've got peeps here that can sign you up. No, that's a shameless production. I don't get any kickback. I don't even get a gold star for that one. Do I, Miana? Probably not. No, so I'd go, if reason can, can settle these things in terms of how do we know there's a God? How do we know he's revealed himself? How do we know the Bible is the word of God? What about the Book of Mormon? What about If we've got answers for those things, and I think we do, then 
You would be a fool not to believe. I often want to ask an atheist to go, well, if there was an omniscient, all-good God who told me something, are you saying I'm a fool for believing that? Wouldn't you be a fool for not believing an all-knowing, all-loving God who told you, hey, if you do this, I'll give you eternal life for free. You'd be a fool not to believe that. Now, I can understand the atheist says, well, I don't believe there is a God. He goes, well, that's fair. We can have that debate. But you treat us as if we're idiots for believing in a God we think is omniscient and all good. Well, don't, I mean, maybe we're wrong and we can have that argument. But realize in principle that you would be fool, a fool not to believe and trust once reason has adjudicated it up to that point beyond which then you can't carry with your reason. So from, from this point forward, if we had you know, several other sessions or if you were in a class uh, that I or some of the other faculty teach, and so I'll just throw this out as a, as, a, as a fun exercise. I won't take the time to go into it here. But I started looking. I said, okay, if, give me a little bit more content on what are these tools of reason. And I think a lot of times what you find the tools are are your normal faculties of knowing, of what you see, hear, taste, touch, or smell. And I, I believe that Christians today have been bullied into thinking, well, if you put all this stock into what you see, hear, taste, touch, or smell, you're going to be an atheist like Richard Dawkins. All these scientists, are, or most scientists today, are atheists. You know? So you don't want to go down that route. I go, well, first of all, the fact that most scientists are atheists, if that's true for the sake of argument, the fact that most scientists are atheists today is a commentary on something that's gone wrong philosophically not something that's gone wrong with their faculties of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, or smelling. You know, it's a philosophical problem because you follow the, the history of ideas. That's a post-17th century phenomenon. For the, since Aristotle onward, you don't find that kind of r crass atheism dominating. Something happened around the 17th century that began to cascade us into atheism. I won't go into that. But here's the, here's the uh, task or the challenge or the exercise I would encourage you to just try. Go through your Old Testament and see how many times you find God appealing to what the Israelites could see, hear, taste, touch, or smell to prove to them that he's the only true God. You heard the thunders. You saw the lightning. You ate the manna. You know, and over and over, and I just started looking these up, and it was just a cascade where God was appealing to just their normal faculties because his creation points to him, and then his revealed truth points to him. You get to the New Testament, you find a continuation of the same epistemology. You look in the New Testament how often it is that the apostles appealed to what they could see, hear, taste, touch, or smell to prove that Jesus rose from the dead. Let me just give you at least one example. 1 John 1. We were in 1 John earlier. 1 John 1, verses 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. So you got seeing, hearing, and touching right there. Concerning the word of life. This life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
Acts 10, 37 through 41. I want to get one more faculty in. And we are witnesses of all these things which he did, both in the land of the Jews in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. God raised him up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. So now we've got taste in there. And Norm Geisler once said, you probably heard a lot of sermons on the Last Supper. He said, how many sermons you ever heard on the first breakfast? That's a cool title for a sermon, wouldn't it? In other words, when Jesus rose from the dead, he sat down and ate breakfast with the disciples. He's not a ghost. He's not Obi-Wan who disappears and then he reappears on Dagobah to talk to, to Luke. That's how New Agers and occultists will explain the empty tomb. No, this is something that people can confirm by their faculties of knowing. And then, of course, I would argue you add the concomitant and appropriate uh, aspects of your intellect to what you see here, taste, touch, or smell. So let me just end where I began. John 17, 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what, we, that's what we need, and that's what we know others need. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe. If you're here this morning and you don't know whether you know God, you need to seek out some of the leadership and they will explain to you how you can know that you know God, which is the most important knowledge is because that's the knowledge that leads to eternal life. Pastor? Pastor?